0: Hello and welcome to episode twenty-seven of the Mostly Weather podcast. My name is Claire Whittam and today I'm joined by Jeff Norwood Brown. Hello. And Neil Robinson. Hello. And today we're going to be taking a look at the future of weather and forecasting, um, and we've invited along a special guest as always. And this week we have Simon Keogh with us. Hi, Simon.
1: Hello there, Claire.
0: Could you just give us a brief summary of what you do here in the Met Office.
1: What I do here in the Met Office, well my name is Simon Keogh, as Claire said I work in the Satellite Applications branch of the Met Office and I lead a team called the Satellite Data Products and Systems Group and this is a team of software engineers and scientists whose job it is to basically put together satellite data products for use in a variety of applications in the Met Office, such as data assimilation for driving numerical models, and also providing a variety of imagery sources for the operations centre to give them situational awareness of what's going on around the world.
0: Excellent. So, a little bit of a sneak peek. We also have Work Experience Week here at the Met Office this week. So, a big shout-out to Olivia, who's here with us for Work Experience today.
2: Say hi, Olivia.
0: Hi. Um, Brilliant. So... Way back when, for those of you that are regular listeners to the podcast, um, in episodes 6, 7 and 8, we covered the weather forecast process. So we looked at observations, modelling and computing side, and also how we communicate the forecast. And so now we're going to be looking at what the future of weather and climate forecasting might look like. We thought it was a good idea to stick with that structure. And so today our focus is going to be looking on the observation side, which is why we've invited Simon along today. And the next couple of podcasts that are going to come up will we'll complete the rest of those uh, areas. But first off, so harking back to episode six, which Jeff, I think was your debut on the <laughs> most weather podcast. Yeah. yeah,
3: you haven't been able to get rid of me since. <laughs> we haven't. you've
0: been a fixture ever since. But does anybody remember one of the striking things we talked about in terms of old-fashioned observations on that podcast?
2: You mean in terms of how we made the observation?
0: How we made the observations. Is this
2: my favourite story about measuring wind speeds?
0: It might well be.
2: So this is the one where we used to measure wind speed by firing a rifle at the sky. So the idea was that uh, we had a tin shack with a rifle pointing out the top and we would fire off the rifle... And we would change the angle we were firing the rifle at until the bullet hit the top of the tin shack and made a noise again. And at that point, you know that you're firing into the wind. The steeper you got to fire the rifle, the faster the wind is. So, like, we've come up with all kinds of wacky ways over the years to measure what we need to know to do the weather forecast, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I joined the Met Office as an observer purely for the armory. (laughs) (laughs) I was so disappointed to learn that, you know, we didn't use that technique anymore but you know observations have developed over the years you know we've, we've used all sorts of things uh one of my favorite uh, uh older observation pieces of equipment is the sunshine recorder yeah. Campbell Stokes sunshine recorder which I think we described probably in episode six was uh it's like a crystal ball that just focuses the sun's rays onto a, a piece of cardboard that will char whenever the sun's out and then you take the piece of cardboard out at the end of the day and measure the charring and
2: and determine how many hours of sunshine we had. So so Simon uh, alluded to this, but is it worth just mentioning quickly what what we need these obs for, right? Because I think there's two broad categories, maybe three actually I can think of. One is so that our weather forecasters know what's happening pretty much now, right? And that's, that's useful for them to just get context. But we also use this for starting our weather forecasts, So we've talked a lot about how these models work and we'll talk more about how they're going to work in the future next episode. But they start from where the atmosphere is now and then use physics to figure out what the atmosphere is going to be in the future. But they need to know what the atmosphere is now. And then the other thing is we use them to keep a record of what's been happening so that we can look back at the sort of climatological record and the weather record over the last. Well, actually, when's when's our oldest? When's the Central England Temperature Series start? 17 something or other?
0: Oh, we talked about this before, yeah. and we couldn't remember. I think it might be a bit earlier than that, is actually, it? but I don't know the exact date. We've got date.
2: some very old temperature records.
0: Like, a bit I like thought
2: that. it
3: was 16-something, but, oh my goodness, oh, yeah. We should, uh, we should do a one. fact check on that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think you're right, and maybe that's a great place to start, which is if we focus in on the, the satellite data that Simon, you mentioned, that we're using um, both to inform what what we're putting out in terms of what we can see right here and now, but actually how that feeds into the forecast process itself. So what sorts of information can we currently get from satellites?
1: Well, it's it's probably worth stepping back and mentioning that, broadly speaking, we've got two types of satellite that we're drawing data from. So we've got geostationary satellites, which um, are not really stationary in the sky, but because they go around the Earth at the same speed that the Earth rotates, it gives the illusion that they're just staring at us all the time. Um, And from those, we get rapid update imagery and data over the same location on the Earth, but at a fairly coarse resolution because those satellites are incredibly far away, about 36,000 kilometers away. So they're taking a distant but rapid update view. And then the other type of satellites we've got are the low Earth orbit satellites, which by contrast, are only about 700, 800 kilometers up. And they they get a very close-up view of the atmosphere and provide us with three-dimensional temperature humidity structure. They provide us with um, um, upper atmosphere density structure. And they provide us with surface wind estimates and soil moisture estimates from from radars. So So that's that's really interesting.
0: So you're saying we can get upper air information and we can get surface information from the same satellite. And... If I think about it very simplistically, we've got a satellite. It's orbiting the Earth. It's looking straight down through the atmosphere at a point on the ground. How do we get information on that vertical structure?
1: Okay, so for the for the vertical structure, we've got various techniques. So we have um, in, infrared sounders. One of those is is the YAZI on UMETSAT's Metop instrument, uh, Metop satellites. Yazi is a, a spectrometer, essentially. For those familiar with, with lab spectrometers, it's kind of the same thing. So you get a measurement in many, many frequency bands um, over a particular area. And we have um, the ATOVS instrument, which is a microwave sounder. Again, both passive instruments, and they're just picking up the radiated infrared and microwave radiation from the atmosphere and from the surface. And if you separate all that radiation out by um, frequency then you're effectively tuning in to a different part of the atmosphere because the the way that those frequencies are absorbed and re-emitted in the atmospheric column is different for each frequency. Can
2: we just break down some of that stuff? So you are talking, you said that both of the things you were talking about are passive. So what mm. we mean by that is there's a bunch of radiation floating about in the Earth system. Some of it comes from the sun. In fact, probably, I, arguably, all of it ultimately comes from the sun. But some of it's re-emitted, right? And some of it's uh, scattered. And then we measure that with these satellites, and we measure it as a function of wavelength, so it's essentially colour of, of this light, and depending on what stuff's made of, we have different things that are reflected and absorbed, right? So things like water molecules absorb a very specific frequencies, so if we see that signature, then we know that we're looking at some water in the atmosphere and that kind of thing. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah, 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 more or less, and then we have um, other frequencies that we might call window channels, where the atmosphere is not very strongly absorbing, and and those channels, you, you're seeing radiation that's emitted from the surface itself. So, if you're very interested, for example, in monitoring sea surface temperature, um, you can do that by looking in a window channel um, and being able to see the infrared radiation that's come from the surface through the atmosphere, as opposed when, to
3: infrared radiation that's coming from the atmosphere itself, so yeah, clouds and that sort right.
1: of thing. So, in, if you if there's a cloud in a way, you you know you might not see the detail that you want in hmm. certain channels. Um, but others particularly in the microwave microwave is very good at being able to see the surface through cloud Yeah, Um, and we use microwave data sub microwave data in our sea surface temperature analyses for example so
3: within the atmosphere the microwave data is used for uh, detecting uh, humidity am I right in thinking that because as as Neil alluded to there the uh, water molecules in the atmosphere sort of vibrate at that sort of frequency so you can estimate how much water vapor is yeah, in. It's,
2: it's worth sort of going into that, I think. The reason this this energy or this this sort of wavelength disappears is because these mole the way the chemicals are, the way the molecular structures they just happen to resonate at that frequency. So the energy gets used up to heat up these molecules, right? It, effectively. And that's where it just it doesn't just, you know, this is a fundamental physical thing. It can't just vanish. It gets it gets spent. Uh, rattling the molecules about so depending on what they're made of that happens at different energies
3: I think it's worth pointing out as well that these when we say microwave instruments they are not transmitting microwaves yeah this these is all satellites. passive now, right? this That's is true. all this is yeah what we mean by passive they are, they are detecting it yeah, in the atmosphere,
0: and, and going back to sort of physics that people might have learned at school, we're basically talking about the electromagnetic spectrum, um, mm-hmm. and it's just different wavelengths along that. So we have lights as part of that, but we also get yeah, as you say, into microwaves and then different ends, radio waves. So that's all we're really talking but about. But These are here.
2: all the same stuff; they're just different wavelengths.
0: Exactly. Basically. So it was yeah,
2: uh, we we did um, uh, the Hall of
3: Fame special on Björkness, and um, this was a gentleman who, well, he invented most uh, most <laughs> things about the weather. Um, but one of the first things he did was when they started testing uh, rockets after the end of the Second World War, he, was, uh, he said to someone, can we stick a camera on one of these <laughs> rockets? And when it gets sent up, now this is going to be measuring um, radiation in the visible spectrum, so what you can see. So that was the sort of initial... It uh, wasn't quite a satellite, but it was the first time we ever looked down on clouds uh, and photographed them um, so I think visible was the one of the first uh, brands of satellite that we put up there Am so I right when, when yeah. abouts
0: was he doing that test Did you say after the second world war yeah so this yeah. is
3: this is in America by the time we'd moved over to america um, okay. uh, and uh he was a lecturer over there um but yeah i mean after after the second world war the the Germans had come up with the um uh, the V two bomb bombers bombs rather, uh, and then that became the, the sort of uh, the the birthplace of uh, rockets and rocketry. And Bjorness thought, wouldn't it be great <laughs> to stick a camera like, pretty much like everyone does now with with balloons and GoPros, with a drone. yeah, or yeah. a drone? That's you know, the new this thing, is it. it. That was this was the new thing to mm-hmm. strap cameras to, and um, that was that's what led to. Well, can we send something up there that can transmit images back? Uh, but as I say, we started off in the visible, and I think the next step was infrared. Can believe it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But
1: what's incredible about that is that, you know, for us in working in meteorology, we, we've got a good idea, for example, of what a tropical cyclone looks like and, a, you know, these big swirly patterns in the atmosphere. But for people who are seeing the data for the first time yeah. from those satellites, they were seeing what these weather systems really look like, and it must have been. Awesome. So this is the first time, it's, it's not like a synoptic snapshot, it's it's a broad-scale yeah. image. You exactly, know, this is, you're seeing no something one's that's been able a thousand kilometres or more in extent, nobody had seen that before. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I think I'm right saying that the 1970s is really sort of like the golden age of the development of satellite technology, and when... Lots of satellites are suddenly going up into space. Huge amounts of new data is being produced, and we're starting to see all of these phenomena, you know, just just visually, but as well as then starting to get this insight into the atmosphere in terms of moisture, as you say, Simon. But I guess clouds, sea surface temperatures, land temperatures. Um, what, what what other parameters are we able to get? So moisture, we can do, and, moisture. and
1: mm-hmm. winds as well. So the winds. metop metop satellites carry. Um, the ASCAT instrument, which is a radar instrument, which is not passive; it's an active instrument so it emits a radar beam, um, which bounces off the sea surface, and um, from that you can infer what the wind speed and direction over the sea surface is, um, because the 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 radiation as it uh, generates, sorry, the the wind makes the sea rougher and rougher, uh, which makes the backscatter stronger and stronger the So satellite. this is reflection from the waves basically. Reflection so, from, the, from the short wind waves so on the ocean surface. is it fair to say it makes the ocean whiter? You're saying it scatters more stuff back? Yeah, so the, the, the ASCAT um, scatterometer aims its radar beam sort of sideways away from the satellite. So a perfectly flat ocean surface would just give you a, a, a specular reflection back off into space and you'd never see it so it'd look dark. But the rougher the surface gets, there's more wave facets which are facing the satellite and will scatter a portion of that beam back in the yes, direction of sense. the satellite to give you some kind of return. And from that, you can infer the wind speed and direction. So it's quite a powerful at tool. At the, at the surface? At the surface, yeah. So not not in the vertical. Mm. But even in the vertical, there's things you can do. Um, we do a lot from geostationary satellites, for example, using a time series of images every, say, 15 minutes. We can track features in those images to give us uh, wind vectors, mm-hmm. what we call them. Um,
3: and you can—I pro- assume—you can profile this. Uh, you know, the, the winds at different heights. Based on um, if you—if you would just say sim- for simplicity's sake, watching the which way a cloud was moving, mm-hmm. um, then you know which way the wind's going and how fast. But if you look at the temperature of the cloud, looking at using infrared, you can work out how high that cloud is in the atmosphere as well. Yep. So you'd be able to look at various speeds in the atmosphere.
1: Yeah. So there's there's various products that we generate here in the Met Office so for cloud top height and and various other cloud parameters um, from the different spectral channels that are on the geostationary. And you know while we were touching on the subject of wind, you know one of the things we're going to talk about today is is the future. Um, in August this year, there's going to be the launch of a brand new satellite which is carrying a laser called Aeolus and that um, satellite will fire a laser beam into the atmosphere and based on the backscatter from the aerosols and particles in the atmosphere will be able to tell us what the line of sight wind is in the upper atmosphere which is great because we'll be able to get winds in parts of the atmosphere which don't have any other strong redeeming features to track. You know, in th- with, the- with the feature track winds we rely on there being a blob of something for us to track in it from image to image to give us what the wind vector is. But with this, you only really need some aerosols in the atmosphere, and you can you can measure the Doppler shift. I count it as a segment. massive
2: success. That we're only 20 minutes into a forecast about the future of weather forecasting. We've already shoehorned a laser in. Yeah, <laughs> it <Like that. laughs> feels like we're doing right. something right. Yeah, yeah. so, so, we've, so gone, we've gone to strapping a camera to something. Yeah. too. Now, let, let's get lasers. <laughs> so let's um, pick up on that. So that you you were talking, you mentioned Doppler there. So this is something people may or may not remember from school this is you know the siren going past you and the pitch of the siren changing as it goes towards and away from you because the um because the the sound waves are getting compressed or stretched stretched out and so this is what you're talking about lasers are useful because they're very coherent sources of light and that means that they're all a really precise wavelength that's all going in a really precise direction so any tiny little change because it's bounced off something that's moving away or towards the beam you can sort of detect and compare to the original beam and then you can use that just like the the ambulance speed changes the pitch you can use that to infer where the wind's going right yeah. Okay. So that's like that's cutting edge stuff. as a Doppler on satellites is the next big yeah, thing. Yeah,
1: and it's it's taken over a decade to to launch this instrument. I remember a decade ago when I was when I was a humble scientist, this was in my <laughs> my job plan to look at this instrument, and it hasn't flown in all that time. So only just launching it now. And one of the major challenges was that this um, the power output from this laser, and it's a UV laser, is is so high. It's so incredibly high that it's, it evaporates all the coatings off the optics, uh, on the in the rest of the instrument, and so they've spent a decade trying to work on ways to build an instrument that the laser itself won't destroy. Is it solar powered? Um, effectively, everything on the satellite will be powered by the solar panels on the spacecraft. Ah, yes. uh, okay. So this is a sorry, I missed that. This isn't.
2: This isn't necessarily powering itself. It's part of a, another spacecraft, is it?
1: So uh, the the Aeolus um, carries is the is the is the mission, and um, um, Aladdin is the name of the uh, laser on that mission. Um, so it will be a just a, a one satellite with one instrument on it. It'll be launched in August. Um, it's been in a laboratory for more than a decade. It's just when you think about like how
2: much power these things need, it's impressive that they can harvest that all from
1: you know, yeah. from something like solar panels. Yeah, I, I, I guess maybe you could explain that the way these, um, these very high output lasers works is they, is they work they don't work in continuous mode, as we would say they work in a pulsed mode. So they give you a very high power pulse, but it's a very short duration. So, you know, you're not draining the batteries on the satellite, essentially. You're just, you're just firing shots into the atmosphere. And they're very intense shots, and they have to be so that you can actually detect any kind of return signal because, you know, most of the signal as it comes out of the satellite, goes into the atmosphere, is going to be scattered in all directions and absorbed eventually uh, before it hits the surface. Touch. And only a small portion of it will come back and be received by the telescope on the satellite.
3: Can I just, just clarify, is this just working in the uh, troposphere or are you going to be able to look higher than that as well?
1: Um, I, 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 I believe from the data we'll see it working better higher up rather than lower down.
3: Okay, higher up in the yeah. troposphere or
1: yeah, so you know you because were... I think there's not much aerosol in in the you're not going to be able to do away, for example with with the wind measurements you get from the a scatterometer just mm. because you've got a laser in space. If no, no, I was just higher, wondering higher what what, what sort
3: of area it was
1: going to work in. That was that was uh, that yeah. was all. But I think to be honest, we're all, we're all waiting to see. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's because, just build just it and find out that we we really don't know even what the lifetime of this this laser is going to be. We yeah. know in the lab that the You know it it's 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 doing better now than it was a decade ago but you know there there aren't any other lasers operating at this frequency Mm -hmm. in space you know in 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 the ultraviolet (laughs) with this power so um, it's an ESA research mission so Mm not a not a UMETSAT operational mission and it could run for several years it could run for a few weeks we don't know, but right. we're all waiting to find out what the results are and what it does well and what it doesn't do so well.
3: So, so, go on. I was going to say, so it's not the first laser, laser in space, is it? Because we've... Um...
2: <laughs> Sorry, I just think the yeah. the phrase laser in space is just so fantastically tickling. We <laughs> can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't mentioned sharks. With yeah, us. Um
3: Because we have uh, LIDAR satellites as well. That's right. Yeah, so um, I happen to work with those on research aircraft and they're very useful for picking up so these are fairly low powered um uh, working in different wavelengths from uv i don't actually know what wavelength <laughs> they're working at but they weren't uv and these were used essentially for just measuring uh, particles in the atmosphere and uh the amount of particles uh, and where these these layers of particles were so that could be like smoke or volcanic ash or or anything like that so very very simply they just fire the laser down and measure how much um uh what time the 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 reflected signal comes back and how bright it is and from that they could infer the height of the layer of um of aerosol um and quantify it as well, uh, measure how much of it there was. You know, so what we used to do with the research aircraft is fly underneath it or try and fly through the layers and and, and sort of calibrate because it's very difficult. Once you set the satellite up there um, to work out if it's doing well, it's quite difficult. So what we used to do with the research aircraft is uh, fly underneath the satellite um, or satellite trains, which I think we need to come back to at some yeah. point, um, just to verify that what the satellite was telling us was actually true and to do that so we just flew through the through the layer that it was measuring so that's because stuff like
2: you don't know the the absolute efficiency and things like this until it's actually in space doing some stuff so yeah. you have compare it to like not on the ground exactly, but in the atmosphere measurements, like from a plane. And this is it, you know, you don't, once it's up there, and you think, oh, I forgot
3: to carry the two so, in the maths, you know. And, and you think, oh, we're going to have to... Re-. So this is why we
2: used to go out and So measure. I've got a story about that, which is slightly smug, actually. When I went to visit NASA, I got the chance to go and see the James Webb Space Telescope being built, which is the replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope. Okay. And uh, the, just the scale of the operation is incredible. This is the biggest clean room, I think, in the world. So it's effectively a huge aircraft hangar. It was completely sterile and positive pressure. And there was this enormous, incredibly expensive telescope being being built in there. But the thing that really struck me is the engineers who were going around literally building the thing with their hands, every nut that got tightened had to be tre- checked and signed off in triplicate by three different engineers, because if you forget to put a washer on yeah. and the thing's in space, you've wasted an awful lot of time and money. Yeah. So I just, I, I mean, I couldn't imagine... A less suitable job for me to do. <laughs> the, the sheer level of care and attention that that requires is just mind-boggling, isn't it? Well, just in a bit of an
3: um, anecdote, top Trumps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of the satellites we went out to uh, um, uh, to calibrate um, was uh, its orbit took it over America and over Texas. So we we based ourselves in Texas and we had a, uh, a ground station that was under the track of a satellite. Uh, and then we had our research aircraft, which would fly about, you know, well, anything up to 30,000 feet. And then we were working with NASA and they had, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the plane, something like a U 2 or something like that. One of these things with enormously long, it looks like a, an enormous glider. Um, and they would be flying at maybe 60, 70,000 feet. And we'd all time it. So we were all in the same part of the atmosphere that the satellite was looking down at. The
2: same sort of columns. So yeah, above each so that other.
3: column of, yeah, it was, was being measured. Uh, from, you know, looking down, you know, from about 70,000 feet and uh, uh, from 30,000 feet where we were, and then from the ground at the same time. And I remember sitting in the briefing room in my flying suit, which is essentially a boiler suit <laughs> with, with a few badges on, but it does make you feel quite good. These guys are basically in space suits. And right the guy sat next to me was in a space suit, and I was like, oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, fantastic. We should, we should maybe step back to the slightly bigger picture because um, we've been quite detailed. So, you know, I've, I always find the satellite world is just full of acronyms as well. Yeah, so no apologies. apologies if we've used some and haven't explained them. Um, but yeah, you briefly talked about satellite trains. So, you know, we've talked about a few specific satellites, but there are hundreds of satellites in, in space now. And as Simon, you said, you know, one satellite might carry one sensor instrument, which will each have their own complicated acronym, or one satellite might... Carry quite a few instruments that are all doing slightly different things. And one of the techniques that are used to try and combine bits of information from different sensors when they're carried on different satellites is to line them up in this, in a train almost, if you think about it. So NASA has something called the A train, and it's, I'm not sure how many satellites, but six, seven satellites that are basically all following each other in the same orbit. So they're all overpassing the same locations. pretty quickly after each other. So you're able to get complementary pieces of information about either the atmosphere or the land.
3: And when you say quickly, we're talking between minutes and hours here. Yes, we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, And all of that information, so millions of data points is then being pulled in to observation networks, into the modelling systems and using as... Neil you said at the start to try and inform our current understanding of the atmosphere so it's a it's a massive enterprise it's a global enterprise as well lots of coordination between mm. NASA Simon you mentioned ESA which is a European Space Agency, Agency is that yeah. right and you met SAT, who are again a European uh, meteorologically focused organization on they using satellite data right, yes. so from my perspective there's already huge amounts of information coming in you've mentioned this new laser but Presumably, this is a continual process. We're we're still investigating new sensors. There's these clean labs all around the world. There's, but also there's a massive lead-in time. By the sounds there of things, is. and things can fail. And yeah, so, when what, people
2: come up with an idea for a satellite, how long does it take to get a new weather satellite into
1: space? It's, that's a it's it's a really good question. Um, but it's one that means that. Um, for people like myself when I'm invited to a show like this to talk about the future of satellites (laughs) I can say it with a degree of confidence because we plan ahead so far Um, so you're looking at at least a a decade from when a mission first gets proposed to actually maybe the launch of the first in the series Um, which is kind of bad if you if it's just a one-off like the Aeolus laser there's no planned follow-on to that mission for example which means that if this mission is a success it's a research mission be a decade before you might see the follow-on and uh, if the satellite only lasts a few months then you've got a gap until you get the next one whereas with operational meteorological satellites we we plan well in advance to not just build a one-off but we build say three in in a in a line so for example with METOP which is the European polar orbiting satellites we've got METOP A and B up there at the moment and then the final one in that series METOP C will be launched in November this year and that gives us continuity because at some point in the future, MetOp A is going to fail, or we'll have to deorbit it because we don't like having space junk floating around. So there's protocols to deorbit satellites before they become space is, junk.
3: is deorbit another
2: word for crashing?
1: A, <laughs> graceful a graceful descent right, into okay. the atmosphere, control final crashing. descent into the Burn atmosphere. So, so you yes. mentioned polar orbiters
2: just there, which uh, they're kind of interesting. So so as people may expect, these are these are things that satellites that orbit along lines effectively of um, uh, latitude, right? So they're going, they're passing over both the poles and going around the Earth. And the reason that that's useful is because the Earth's rotating underneath them as they do it. So if you imagine each satellite paints out a kind of line going from north to south around the world, I think we call them swaths, don't we, in satellite parlance. Mm As that happens, if it's going around, I don't know how long an or- polar orbit takes. But...
1: An orbit takes about 100 minutes.
2: Oh, so that's really fast, yeah. right? And so in the meantime, the Earth's rotated around ever so slightly. And so it really, it paints out like a sort of approaching complete picture of the Earth for every rotation it makes, which, you know, is useful for us because we get these more kind of spatially coherent data sets. I think it's quite a kind of smart way of, uh, of using one satellite to take, a, you know, images of the whole world.
0: I mean, I think, you know, I mean, the future to me is we want more, more observations more frequently from more parts of the world, but better. we have some, and better ones. Yeah. We have some fundamental, I guess, physical limitations though as to what's actually possible. So this idea, the polar orbiters, they're, they're seeing the same spot at the same time every day, but physics means we can't actually do that more frequently, if you see what I mean. I'm explaining myself badly. You know, the geostationary ones. So, so we have always to, look at the same well, area, but can you speed up the polar orbiters? Is that a essentially option?
1: you wouldn't you wouldn't speed up the polar okay. orbiters, but um, you might make lots more of them. And this is something that you know, in the context of what's the future, we can talk about the far future. There are companies now that are building very small scale. CubeSats or nanosats, I don't know what you want to call them, but extremely small satellites, which are dedicated to one particular job. Um,
0: When you say extremely small, let's put this into context, because I don't have a good idea. What's a a normal one versus an extremely small?
1: something like Envisat, which was probably the largest Earth observation satellite that's gone up, was the size of a double-decker bus. Okay. So that's pretty big. And ESA have said they'll never make anything as big (laughs) as that ever again because it was a technical nightmare. Um, So most things are of the order of half of that size for a for a a big polar orbiting platform. So
0: it's like a large van.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the 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 cubesats, they're more like the size of a shoebox.
0: Really. And they have
1: maybe the brain of a mobile phone, which are pretty powerful these days, and they'll have some very simple experimental kit on board which is still very de- developmental so ranging from everything from a you know a small camera to take pictures through to perhaps a, a gps receiver to to do what we call radio occultation so that's spying on the um, the gps signal as it goes through the atmosphere through the atmospheric limb and measuring the the timing difference that you get when the the gps um rays are de- refracted in the atmosphere so you know with these with these Passive little receivers flying around the Earth, you can get all the different um, information from the GPS constellation as, it, as the, the, the signals get bent in the atmosphere. And uh, yeah, the more, more, the more receivers you can add into that network, the more data you get. Mm-hmm. You, know, you only need that constellation of 20 odd or 30 GPS satellites. And you can have hundreds and hundreds of these small CubeSats flying around and be getting more and more data.
0: And the data that they're then telling you using these GPS signals, so just to clarify, they're not refining that GPS signal. They're actually using that signal to say something about the atmosphere that we that's can right. use for weather like forecasting. opportunistic
2: observation, right? I think these are really interesting, is using stuff that's not meant to be used to detect the weather to detect the weather, yeah? So yeah. the GPS is happening anyway, and we can piggyback on that just to see, you know, what, how weather is affecting
1: it? That's right. So, well, but it, it does raise um, a, big, a big issue for the Met Office because you know we we fund UmetSat to to do these dec- multi-decade satellite programs for us, and we get money from the government to to pay UmetSat our subscription um, based on these very long-term programs. But in in parallel, we're now seeing the rise in the private sector of companies that want to do private sector satellite observations from these cubesat. Networks And, you know, just to give you an idea of, of the sort of scale we're talking about, and I think it was, um, is it space? I think SpaceX are planning to launch about three or four thousand of these satellites over the next few years.
0: So we're talking thousands versus thousands maybe one
1: versus or two versus, a year, possibly. Yeah, a, a few a year of the, of the large missions. So you and the reason that SpaceX want to do this is because they want global Internet provision. They right. want to take away the, I guess, th- they want to eat into the communications market where it says if you want internet somewhere in the world, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, instead of using a geostationary telecommunications satellite and paying a very expensive charge to use that, you can instead use these these, these whizzy little satellites that are flying around everywhere. And you'll always be within range of one of these tiny um, CubeSats to be um, able to bounce your signal wherever it needs okay. to go. And when you now, say
0: flying around everywhere, they're not self propelled so to speak. They're still in a polar yeah, orbiting they environment. Are,
1: they are projectiles effectively. They they will be in, in a lower Earth orbit than okay. the normal satellites. So not at say 700 but maybe a few hundred 200 or so kilometres above the Earth. Um, they won't have any fuel to help them um, avoid collisions with other objects in space, but then they are very small, so the probability of them hitting something might be considered. They small. have seen the film Gravity. Yeah, I, I have. Did it, did it make you <laughs> sick to your stomach? The use of physics. <laughs> it, it's yes, indeed, indeed. For the purists, it's not a film for the purists, but it's great fun. Um, and you know, these these small satellites do hold a lot of a lot of promise, and, and likewise, we could look to piggyback instrumentation on the geostationary telecommunications satellites, for example, um, that that could provide us with information. So there's lots of opportunities out there, but quite how we manage to pay for the data from these kind of opportunistic commercial missions is is still a big source of debate in the satellite world.
3: So talking of piggybacking, if we can just bring us slightly closer to Earth, um, one of the innovations that's come out recently uh, is a thing called MODAS, and this is uh, tapping into data that um, airlines transmit back to base all the time. Okay, so,
0: does MODAS stand for something, Jack? Uh,
2: yes, it does, <laughs> but you don't know what. Fair enough. No <laughs> idea. There's one thing my PhD taught me: it's how to guess acronyms. <laughs> yeah, Surely we can make something the, up. Yeah, the, yeah, we'll, we'll find something there. Um,
3: so what? The, what the? Basically, when an airline takes off, it's always sending. Um, uh, an aeroplane takes off. It's always sending information back to its company. Um, normally, about how the engines are performing, you know, fuel efficiency, if there's any faults going on, that sort of thing. But they also transmit the location and their height, the outside temperature, the wind speed they're encountering, and various other parameters, the humidity out there, which is exactly the sort of thing, uh, you know, folks like the Met Office are looking for all the time. And we realized that we could tap into these messages, and the airlines don't mind at all. So suddenly, we are getting. You know, millions of bits of information every hour of every day from all around the planet to give us information on what's going on in the atmosphere at any any given point.
0: And this is every aircraft that's flying uh, commercial. And com- commercial yeah.
3: aircraft, yeah. So you know, I mean, obviously, if you, you know, you, your small Cessna from a local flying club isn't going to be sending that sort of information back, but but the big commercial aircraft are, are giving all the information out for free. That they didn't realise it, but. But we can make use of that and they've got no problem because they're going to send it back anyway. So if we, all you need to do is build a little receiver. I think it costs about 70 quid to 70 pounds rather, I should say, um, to build one of these things. We can get all this information and then fire it back into our supercomputers and make use of all that data. And it's a lot of free observations.
0: That's really interesting. And I I guess that, you know, there are technical complications about using that data and it's clearly not distributed all around the world. We have, you know, people know where those big flight paths are. But I'm assuming, Simon, that a lot of the groundwork in that area has been done, actually, because of the satellite data that's been available. And some of that's limited in area. The the concepts behind how you incorporate vast coverage of data into modelling and those strategies... Most of that's sort of been worked out already, which makes it quite easy to pull in these new aircraft observations.
1: Um, aircraft observations, satellite observations. Um, yeah, I mean, essentially... yeah both I
0: guess, I'm thinking, yeah.
1: When we talk about satellite um, mission, we, we, we talk about missions, in quotes, but really the mission involves both what we call a space segment and the ground segment. So that is the bits that go into space and give us data, and then there's the bits on the ground that make sure that all the data gets to the people who need it for their applications.
0: Which I'm imagining costs a little bit more than the 70 pounds Jeff has just said.
1: <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. So in the, in the case of the Mode S, we we get we get data um, for free because it's openly broadcast and anybody with a receiver can receive it. In the case of other aircraft observations like AMDAR, there's a different model. So with with the AMDAR data that's transmitted in flight, the company has no interest in transmitting this data for its own purposes so we have to pay for the, the temperature and humidity so Amdar is flight. is
3: like the the onboard weather radar um, on the aircraft is that what you mean by it?
1: well it's it, it start Amdar started off as just being essentially a very simple temperature sensor on the aircraft and you know from aircraft in flight going transatlantic and so on they would send us in real time the temperature at the altitude the plane was at and that was incredibly helpful and the way that the cost model that we adopted for that was that each nation state would basically pay for its own national observations so therefore the observations were only ever procured once from the company that sold them um with satellites it's a, it's a little bit different because you know these these new operators coming into the market they don't necessarily belong to a specific country they might be multinational companies the cost model that they might want is to sell observations to each country separately which uh, would go against something that we would call um uh, the World Meteorological Organization's resolution 40 which is all about the free and open exchange of meteorological data um that you know we we have to You know, if we buy data in the Met Office from an observation provider, we must be free to share it with every other meteorological organisation. So if we bought satellite data from a private company, we should be free to then distribute it to our partners at NOAA, JMA and Chinese Meteorological Administration and other organisations that are all trying to forecast the weather in their region.
0: It's a very interesting model, isn't it? I, there aren't very many other areas of International or, Harmony
1: and Collaboration. Yeah, yeah.
0: business where, where this works. But it, it's a real fundamental cornerstone of actually globally National Meteorological Services being able to provide good weather yeah. services, isn't it? So yeah. I'd like
2: to uh, talk about some uh, experimental OBS that have been done. I wonder if you guys have heard about it. This is this idea that not all OBS are created equal. And what I mean by that is if you imagine going to run. Remember that we want these obs partly to to initialize our next forecast. There's this, this idea that some observations might be more important to measure in some particular places of the atmosphere. You can imagine they're a bit sensitive or uncertain. If you get those ones right, they're disproportionately good at making the forecast work in the future. So I know there's been some research done with drones and automatically sending up drones to go to these locations and try and make measurements there and then run the forecast and then use that forecast to figure out where the drone should go next. So I think that's a really cool idea. As far as I know, nobody's really got that to be practically workable yet. But in principle, this is a cool idea, right? You can imagine these drones flying to these sensitive parts of the atmosphere to make targeted observations for the weather forecasts.
0: It's it's funny the parallels there actually potentially with these these shoebox, small microsatellites, this idea of this constellation of microsatellites versus a a kind of constellation of drones much closer to the surface or at layers through the surface – all just yeah, maximising on the volume of information, I guess. It's much that's also earthling. bang for a
2: buck, isn't it? I think what's cool about that is you can really start to target what obs you want.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And mm. I, I suppose we probably should also come a bit closer to the surface and, and made closer to home. I mean, one of the reasons we're talking about satellites and drones uh, is because there's lots of hard-to-observe areas of the world over the oceans and things, but in the... On the land mass, you know, we have reasonably high density of observations, but um, I'm assuming there are developments in in that area as well. And again, ultimately, the more sensors that you have somewhere, the more information that you get, and and ideally, the better that makes your forecast. I don't know whether anyone's sort of done a. Well, you know like a cost benefit analysis where where does well, this, that stop having
3: this an impact is, this is the, the problem is is we want more and more data but you know we we, we don't have the uh, you know infinite resources you know so this is where initiatives like wow came from which uh um was an innovation to say look if you've got your own little weather station which a lot of people do and you're interested in the weather, why not I'll log onto a website uh, website and tell us what your your data is and we can use that i mean it will be quality checked so if you know, you're sending in saying it's it's 12 degrees uh, in your back garden, and your next door neighbour is saying it's 37. Then there needs to be some sort of qualifying um, on that. But this is it. We're you know we're essentially asking the public. You know, can you, you know, if you've got a weather station already, can you supply us with yes, more so information? That's
2: what- That's what we call WOW, right? So this is the Weather Observations website, I guess, that it stands for. Yeah, I think that's it. Can everybody remember the URL?
0: But It's a a really great observation (laughs) (laughs) of use of citizen science in a way. You know, citizen science takes a variety of, of definitions. But in this case, actually, we can use people that are interested in the weather, schools, all around the world, actually, now as well, feeding into WOW, And there's the potential now that that information can be used in the actual forecasts that are being issued, whether that's, as you say, Jeff, it needs to be quality controlled, whether Mm -hmm. it's by a human looking at what's happening now. So our operational meteorologists who are giving uh, the forecast to customers or out to the public can actually get a snapshot of what's happening right now in a location and are much better informed, or whether it's doing something more clever and automating all of that. And, yeah, rather than having to build an expensive a network of observation sites ourselves, or the National Met Service, we can just use and maintain use, them. As well. And maintain it, yeah. yeah. We can just use what people are doing. Mm. And I, I know in the, you know, the more of the developing world, that's really, you know, real cost financial challenges about increasing numbers of weather stations. Yeah. But things like this, or even mobile phones now, are potentially bringing new technologies into line that would allow us to capture information. So I know mobile phones apparently measure the air pressure at yeah, of the time.
3: The, yeah, the iPhone has got one of the most accurate uh, uh, barometers built into it that nobody uses.
0: <laughs> exactly. So if you could just tap into everybody's iPhone, anyone that had an iPhone, it's telling you the air pressure. You'd have a reasonable idea that it's probably within two metres of the surface because people carry them <laughs> around in their pockets or their bags, don't they? Um, and just to think of the vast amounts of extra information you would get that would really did, help to... Did you
2: ever hear about the, the measurements that were done of... Um- sort of earthquake vibrations from uh, taking common periodic signals from every these yeah, phones. So yeah. you could sign up for this app. And then it's amazing to think that the accelerometer in this phone, you know, you're walking and driving and chucking at the table and all that stuff gets filtered out by comparing the phones together and you get this periodic wobble in the earth, which is, you know, I just think it's amazing that you can sort of harvest those tiny, tiny signals out of all that noise.
0: So general conclusion seems to be there's going to be a lot more data from a lot more places, uh, which will all feed into helping our understanding. Simon, any last words or what you really think is the critical new things coming along from the satellite perspective?
1: Well, I, I think as we, as we look to the present, we've just gone through a little revolution. We're, we're, we're adding in observations we never had before. For example, it, over the States now and coming over Europe soon, we'll be having lightning information from space. Um, on, on a on a geostationary satellite, so we'll be able to see lightning flashes in the clouds, which is something we we haven't been able to do from a geostationary before. We've got the we've got the the, the first UV laser giving us winds in space coming up uh, in in August, and then we've got the the last of the MetOps going up in November. We've got the future geostationary constellation, the the, the MeteorSat third generation satellites going up in 2021 ish and also the metop second generation polar orbiters coming up so there's going to be a lot of change we've also got the private sector creeping in as i said potentially offering us new alternatives in terms of observations and you know from a met office perspective we have to we have to realize that over the next decade we're going to be delivering about 30 billion pounds worth of earth observation driven benefits to the uk economy over the next decade that's it's quite a big number it's it's a 14-fold return on investment in terms of what the taxpayers put into our organization but it's all driven by earth observation and if we switched off all those earth observation sources the satellites the radars and everything else there'd be not much coming out of this building not much yeah. coming out of this organization we wouldn't be able to say much about what's going to happen in the weather in future um it, it weather forecasting would be set back an awfully long time so what Earth Observation has given us is tremendous, and the benefits that the UK economy gets from the Met office leveraging this data is also massive.
2: Hear, here. Just Fantastic. one more
1: final anecdote. So I've got, I've got uh, an app on my
3: phone um, from a company called Blitzortung.org, who uh, are a German lightning-detecting uh, website. I've got their app on my phone, and it alerted me the other day to say there had been a lightning strike Uh, Within 10 kilometers of where I was. And it was about three seconds after I got alerted, I heard the thunder. (laughs) So the app was faster than nature. Brilliant.
0: That's impressive. Great. So phones, satellites, huge amounts of new data coming online, um, higher resolutions, much more frequent data. The challenge we now have is incorporating that actually into our forecasts and using that to improve the modelling and how we communicate that forecast. So we're going to come on to that in the next couple of podcasts. So stay tuned. It's a big challenge, I think. So hopefully we'll get some good guests in to help us tackle that challenge. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Simon for coming along and telling us all about satellites. Thanks to Jeff and Neil. Cheers. Um, We will try and get some information and some relevant pictures and maybe some uh, photos of the latest satellites onto the show notes. So you can find those at metoffice.gov.uk forward slash mostly hyphen weather forward slash episode 27. If you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast, that would be great. We'd love to hear feedback. And if you've got any questions or any burning thoughts that you might like us to cover actually in the next two episodes, please do email us at mostlyweather at Thanks once again, everyone. Thank you for listening and join us again for the next episode of the Mostly Weather podcast.
3: Bye. Bye. Bye.